God is the greatest, wisest venture capitalist in the universe. And when he can find a man or a woman whose heart is fully his, he says, I'll strongly support it. And he doesn't just have money to support it with. Anything that you would ever need to fulfill his highest purposes, since all that you have and all that you are are his on loan to you, he promises he will give to a select group of people. Are you one of the select group of entrepreneurs and leaders that God wants to bless with the resources of his kingdom? Well, would you like to be? I'm Ken Powell, and this week on FCCI's Pathway to Purpose podcast, we're launching into a five-part series with Chip Ingram, CEO and teaching pastor of Living on the Edge, an international teaching and discipleship ministry. In fact, I'll include a link to Chip's ministry website in our podcast show notes. You know, I was deeply blessed by Chip during my years of ministry training at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois, where Chip was a guest speaker at numerous conferences and events. But the icing on the cake for my appreciation of Chip came when I heard this series of talks that he delivered at an FCCI conference. Chip entitled this series, Holy Ambition, What It Takes to Make a Difference for God. And in these messages, Chip provides a crystal clear biblical understanding of our purpose and calling as Christian leaders in business. In fact, the first time Chip delivered this message, it was to highly successful business leaders at a conference in Silicon Valley, and you'll enjoy his retelling of that experience. But don't miss the powerful reminders from the life of King Asa in the Old Testament, Reminders of what God wants to accomplish through those whose lives are fully committed to Him and who do not rely on their own wisdom and success, but remain humble and reliant on God's truth and leading in their lives. In particular, to achieve even greater kingdom impact in the latter years of business stewardship. Here's Chipping. I read in the book here, transforming our world through Christ, one company leader at a time. That's the vision of FCCI, and we really are thrilled to get to partner together. Transforming, you don't transform a company unless you transform a leader. As I prayed and looked through things, I found in my folder uh, the second time I ever taught this material. It wasn't at a church. In fact, the first time it wasn't at a church. Pastoring at Santa Cruz Bible Church in the Bay Area, right there on the coast at Santa Cruz. And I got a call from a good friend out of our church and said, I have this friend, and he's bringing these people from around the country. They're going to be at Pebble Beach. There's 11 or 12 of them. And uh, it's sort of an evangelistic outreach and discipleship. About eight of them are Christians, four of them are not. And these are up and outers. I mean, the one guy's the chairman of, and, you know, he named, you know, Dial and just all kind of these corporations. And this other guy owns two or three sports franchises. And, you know, he really had me intimidated. He said, they're just looking for some good Bible teaching. So could you just, you know, I'll take you down, and it'll be a Saturday evening. They're going to play golf and build relationships and share, and the believers will be sharing with the unbelievers, and they all want to grow. So just come and give them a good word from God. And so I'm pastoring a church, and I'm thinking, well, I'm glad that somewhere on my journey I learned that everyone's desperately insecure, because I feel desperately insecure right now. And, you know, a lot of those guys were household names, and I won't, you know, in any way act like I was very intimidated. And so I prayed and prayed, and, you know, thought of different messages I had, and nah, none of these work, and this is sort of an unusual audience. And so, God, what, what, do you, what do you want me to say to these people? And uh, there's a book of the Bible that since early on I had uh, pretty well, I taught through all of it, but I could think my way all through a book and I thought, who's a businessman in the Bible? 
Who's someone that is parallel to these men that you have a word to say to them? And I thought, Nehemiah. And I remember thinking and praying and thinking and praying. And some of you do some public speaking. It is not a good feeling when you're on the car, on the way, to the event, to speak. And you've been thinking and you've been praying. And you still don't have that outline completely done. You know, you got the backup message in the back, but this is not the good one. And I still remember turning over the back of an envelope. And as you know, some of you know, and, and bang, 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 I thought, you know what? This is the message you want me to give. And then I thought, Lord... But, but I don't know these guys. This is like really strong. And I said, well, what do you really want me to say? And it was like the Holy Spirit says, well, try this, Chip. Just tell them the truth. I said, well, I'll probably never see him again, so that's good. And so um, I began to talk to them about ambition and having a holy ambition. And then I remember in one little part, and it was sort of serious, and I was nervous, and then I kind of loosened up and I said, you know, guys, um, you know, of all the people in the whole world, I mean, every single people breathing on this planet, you're, you're easily in the top 1% and maybe in the top half percent in terms of intelligence, power, influence, and wealth. And they kind of looked at each other thinking, you know, it wasn't smug, but it was kind of like, you know, this is a very smart young pastor they've brought to help us here. <laughs> and then my next line was, and do you know that God is not impressed with any of that at all? <laughs> and in fact, I was really afraid and intimidated, and I, I've read about some of your names and different things that you have done, but then I realized to them that much has been given, much is required, and I thought to myself, I feel incredible pressure when I teach at Santa Cruz Bible Church, and, and now it, at that time it was going out on maybe a few radio stations, and I said, I feel overwhelmingly the, the stretch of the stewardship of I'll be held accountable for that. And, you know, I read my little Wall Street Journal and Forbes magazine, and you guys are worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that you'll give an account to God for every penny of it. How do you guys sleep at night? <laughs> I thought that would sort of break the ice. <laughs> and then I told him, did you know something? That the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the whole earth. That he might strongly support those whose heart is fully his. I said, guys, let me, let me give that to you again. And, you know, I knew God was doing something because a couple of them started pulling out a pen like it might be important and they were going to take notes. And, and for the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the whole earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are fully his. Life is about stewardship. He gives some people a little, some people a lot, and some people a ton. And whatever he gives you, he holds you accountable. And whether it's gift or leadership or wealth or position or platform or influence, you'll stand before God. But his eyes are going up and down all over the earth. In fact, this day, in this room, up and down the aisles, and from person to person to person, and his eyes are looking for a man or a woman whose heart is absolutely and completely his so that instead of you feeling under pressure with the wealth and the position and the gifts that you have, you would feel like the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe wants to come along you and support you and give you strength and give you wisdom. And can you imagine what it would be like 
to have the God of the universe sort of like a venture capitalist look at your life and say, I think this is a good investment. And you've, you've run businesses, you've started businesses, you've probably invested in other businesses. You know, you're looking for character, you're looking for opportunity, you're looking for people that you can trust. God is the greatest, wisest venture capitalist in the universe. And when he can find a man or a woman or even a student whose heart is fully his, he says, I'll strongly support it. And he doesn't just have money to support it with. He has grace. He has mercy. You need staff, he'll give you staff. You need money, he'll give you money. You need an idea, he'll give you an idea. Anything that you would ever need to fulfill his highest purposes, since all that you have and all that you are are his on loan to you, he promises he will give to a select group of people. And that's to people whose hearts are his, fully. Now, it would seem to me, right about now, I, I really have their attention, which is really, really good. And I'm realizing that they are desperately insecure, just like me. Because you know what? It doesn't matter how many letters behind your name, how many zeros behind your portfolio, or what anybody else thinks out there. Every man and every woman looks in the mirror, probably more than once a day, but at least once a day. And then there's times where you really look in beyond the mirror to your heart and you say, why am I here? What, what am I going to do with my life? Does life really make sense? And is, is my purpose, am I going to squander these years upon the earth? Or will I fulfill like David did? God had him fulfill his purposes in his generation, and then he died. And I want you to know there's an amazing promise that his eyes, it's axiomatic. You know, some of you are Bible students, and I, I got to talk with some of you last night, and you teach the scripture, and you might be thinking, now I see on the notes at 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, and that's an Old Testament passage, and you're kind of making this sound like it's a timeless, axiomatic principle that's even true today, which is exactly what I'm doing. Because it is an axiomatic passage because it is a truth about what God is like. Because if you study this passage carefully, what you'll find is it's a judgment passage. It's a promise, but it's a judgment passage. Would you open your Bible to Second Chronicles? And we're going to go on a little journey together. This is going to have to be the brief part of it. Because I want to get to our hero, our model, Nehemiah. But in Second Chronicles chapter 16, let's pick up the story. Because when you see this passage in context, it gets better and deeper and richer than you can imagine. A little history as you're turning in your Bibles. If you want to stop at chapter 14, you can. You know, and as you read the Old Testament, and uh, that walk through the Bible is a great tool. Uh, when I was first approached about walk through the Bible, I thought to myself, I don't even know what walk through the Bible does. I, I knew that they did the daily walk or the daily walk Bible because I read it for the first 10, 15 years as a Christian. And I knew there was an Old Testament seminar because we had it at our church. I had no idea that there was small group curriculum or things all around the world. But I'll tell you what, it's a good little tool. And I would read through the Bible and I begin to get an idea of what things were about. So if you read through that Old Testament, what you find out is when you get to the Kings, you know, some of, some of it's a little boring. You know, first and second Kings, first and Chronicles. Here's how you can remember it. Bad King, bad King, bad King, bad King, bad King, okay King, good King. Bad King, bad King, bad King, bad King, bad King, bad King, really, really bad King, good King. I mean, you can't find a good King in the whole book, Carly, right? And so Asa pops up, he's a good King. He's a good king. 
And if you study carefully, in fact, if you want to get a cup of coffee, go out by the pool and relax or something, chapter 14, about verse 2, you realize after all these bad kings, he does something major. He takes down the idols. Ooh, that was, that was, that was a gutsy call. And then by verse 6 of chapter 14, you find that God is pleased with him and God gives him a season of peace. And if you study and look at kind of the whole background, you find for about 15 years, then he starts a building program and there's God's blessing and there's peace and great things are happening. And then in verse 7, uh, there's this huge army comes against him. And you have this great prayer by Asa. Oh, God, only you can do it. We're just tiny little weenies. And, you know, we're outnumbered a zillion to one. This is a loose translation of the Hebrew, of course. And, and, and there's no way. And, but these are your people. And God miraculously intervenes. I mean, he's desperately dependent. And God comes in and miraculously intervenes. And the Cushites are completely destroyed. And then what we find is, is the prophet comes in chapter 15 and says, Asa, God is so proud of you. Now let me tell you, you know, the history of Israel and the history of Judah, now they, they've divided and, you know, you're, you're the king of, of Judah now. And I'll tell you what, if you would really seek after God and if you would make a new covenant, if you would do things God's way, he wants to bless you and he steps up and he does and the people say, yes, let's do it. And they make a new covenant with the Lord. And then it says there's, for 20 years he has an extended period of prosperity and peace. And so you got bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king. And then amazing things are happening. Asa does a great job. And then there's a great door of opportunity, except Asa doesn't think it's a great door of opportunity. As you pick it up in chapter 16, notice it says that in the 36th year of Asa's reign, for 35 years, he's rolling. I don't know exactly how old he was when he became king, but, you know, let's say he's 20, and, you know, maybe some Bible student knows exactly how old he was. I can't remember. But, I mean, he's, he's in that 55 to 60-year-old range, you know, like a business owner, like been there, done that. He's had those early times of crisis and cash flow and struggles and problems, and now he's successful. I mean, he's a successful king, and he's got a nice treasury, and he's got peace. And God is going to bring a great opportunity, but he's disguising this great opportunity as a crisis, just the way he does it in your life and mine. And this great opportunity is, is that Israel and Judah are separate, and the king of Israel decides he's going to attack Judah, and uh, Asa realizes, you know what, we're going to lose this one. But this time he doesn't pray. He doesn't say, oh God, I'm desperately dependent. This time he looks into his treasury and his wallet, finds a uh, neighboring king with a big army, pays him off, and has that king come over and take what happened. And it picks it up at verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. We're not the Cushites. He's bringing him back. Remember 20 years ago? We're not the Cushites and the Libyans, a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen. Yet when you relied on the Lord, you were delivered. God delivered them into your hands. Now, here's our axiomatic passage, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strongly support those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Aram would be a threat. And God's goal in the crisis is that 
in this midst of prosperity, in the midst of 35 years of peace, 15 years and then another 20 years, in the midst of kind of making it, of finally getting over the hump, of building the business, of being the guy on top. God said, I'm going to do something greater in your middle to latter years than I did in all your younger years combined. And Asa missed it. And Asa missed it because his prosperity had lulled him in to reliance on himself instead of reliance on God. And I will tell you, we could take a microphone and you could go and tell me about times when your kids have been in ICU. You could tell me about crisis points in your marriage. You could tell me about times when you were out of cash, out of money, couldn't make payroll, and you were in the back bedroom on your knees, and you and your wife screamed, oh God, please, please, please. And you have all those war stories, and God delivered. And now a great many in this room, and your 401k is a 802k. And it was you and a couple people in the back room, and now you know they've written you up in some magazines. And you're in that top 1%. And the people in this room, whether you like it or not, you didn't get to choose it, you're smarter than 99% of the people in the world. You're wealthier than 99% of the people in the world. You have more leadership than 99% of the people in the world. And God will hold you more accountable than 99% of the people in the world. And people on the outside are dreaming to be like you. I want to be a business owner. I want to be a CEO. I want to be a business leader. I want the nice house, and I like you know, nice to have a little summer house too. And if you had a beach house, it would be great. I'd like to have some nice cars and plenty of food, and you know, I'm going to be real generous with it and honor God with all. But you know, they're all wanting to be like you. They just don't know what it is to be like you. They don't know what the pressure's like. They have no understanding how hard it is to parent when you have enough money to take care of all your kids' needs and how difficult it is to restrain yourself and not pull them out of jams instead of help them learn to grow up. Forbes magazine had a very, very interesting article about three years ago and talked about top executives in America. Their kids are turning out worse than all kids in America except the poorest of the poor. And the title of the article in Forbes says, apparently what it, makes, what it takes to be a great executive works antithetically at what it takes to make a great father. And I mean, it was an evaluation of the percentage of kids on drugs, the percentage of kids in counseling, the percentage of kids with major problems with depression. See, you have a stewardship and you have pressures and God wants to support you. But the temptation of wealthy, powerful people, and by the way, I love, what you, I love the way you're looking at me right now. I just love this. This always happens. I use that phrase to a large group like this. The temptation of wealthy, powerful people. And you know who you're thinking? Well, he's talking about someone else in this room. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean I'm, not, I'm not that wealthy and I, I'm not that powerful. You know why? Because you you've done the American mathematics. It's called, oh, I always measure by the curve. You know, I've sat in the room with a guy worth $200 million and looks at me and goes, man, I, I'm not wealthy. Now, Bill Gates, now he's wealthy. I mean, there's no big B on mine. I mean, my trust fund, it's not even. And I don't care how much money you have, you will mentally find someone else who has a little bit more and you think you're in this upper middle class. I got news for you. You're in the upper, upper, upper class, okay? Come with me to India. Come with me to Africa. Come with me to Haiti. Come with me to downtown Detroit, Chicago. 
You're in the top 1% people. God has a glorious plan for your life. The other, the other thing I find about wealthy, powerful people, they always feel guilty about being wealthy and powerful. That seems kind of dumb if God gave it to you and your priorities are right. Did you ever think maybe he gave it to you because he thought he could trust you with it and he wanted you to do something wonderful with it and he really loves you and he's for you and he's not down on you? You need to talk to wealthy people, especially really committed Christians, and if they have anything nice, the first we got it on sale. Well, we, the pool, the pool was, was for the youth group. See, we baptize in the pool. That's why we have a pool. And really, really it, it really is. I mean, my wife was praying one day and said, gotta have a pool, cause you know, a lot of baptisms, you know. You know, instead of, how about, we're very generous, God really loves us, we like to swim, we have grandkids, and we wanted a pool. We put a pool in the backyard. Do you got any verses on that? I bet Solomon had a pool. I bet David had a pool. I bet Job had a pool. Barnabas could afford a pool. Sad commentary, isn't it? He started well and finished poorly. Here's my question and what I want to talk with you about for the next three days. Is will we answer God's call to make a significant impact at this pivotal moment in history? You are living in a dynamic, strategic time in history. And I wish I could develop it all, but let me give you four things that have happened in the world And God has chosen to place you as a business owner, a business leader, as a CEO at a time in history when, number one, the world has changed. The world has shaken since 9-11. The bubble, I mean, it is, terrorism is a reality all over the world. And and from what we see, nothing nothing about that's going to change anytime soon, correct? Number two, the family is disintegrating. I mean, it's every, 76% is the divorce rate in Russia right now. Over 60% of all the children in, in South America are born illegitimately. Of the family in the United States, this great Judeo-Christian ethic that we have, is divorce is about the same rate or a little above our counterparts. I mean, the family is disintegrating. I mean, when the number one show 25, 30 years ago is Ozzy and Harriet, and now it's MTV, Ozzy Osbourne, with a dog doo-dooing in the, in the middle, and people cussing at one another on MTV, and it's their number one show, and that's family. We have a disintegrating family, we have a world that is shaken, and we have a church that is sick. I mean, I hope Barna, and I hope... Gallup are wrong, but only about one out of ten Christians in America live anything close to what a biblical New Testament Christian looks like. In terms of we lie at about the same rate, we steal at the same rate, we commit adultery at about the same rate. But it's not an American problem. I just came back from Nigeria. I just came back from the Arab world. Except in places where you get killed for being a Christian, the quality of the Christian life is very, very shallow. As someone said, about 16 miles wide and about a sixteenth of an inch thick. In America, 80% of the churches are plateaued or declined. Every day, 8 to 10 churches close their door in America. 50% of all churches in America had zero New people come to Christ last year. We got an anemic church. We got a world that's rapidly changing with terrorism and fear. We have a family that's disintegrating. And now we have a global, a world that's flat. If you've read Friedman's book. We have communication, technology, 
and access in ways that are so global. What's happening in China and Russia is, or, or India is, is absolutely astounding. And that means that people can get information and change can occur. And we are positioned where people have never been more afraid, more needy, and more open. And never could we get information and truth to them faster and better than today. Our greatest crises and problems are a great door of opportunity. But the greatest danger for American Christians and people like yourself is that we will focus inward and basically say, is my family and my network okay? Is everything okay behind our gated community? Are my kids okay in these schools that me and a few people can afford because we can place them in this bubble over here? And will we rely on our money and our power and our influence to keep our little network safe and unconsciously basically say by our actions, to hell with the world? and the command of Christ. Because what's the vision? Jesus' Jesus' commandment has not changed. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all ethnos, all people groups. The heart of God, the passion of our Lord Jesus, who died and rose from the dead, is go into every people group on the face of the globe and tell them that I love them, that I died for them, that I paid for their sin, I've risen from the dead, there's a brand new life that's available, my spirit will come and live in them, I will adopt them into my family, I'll give them a new inheritance, I'll put spiritual gifts in them, I'll give them purpose and focus, and I'll transform the world. Your mission statement says transforming our world through Christ, one company leader at a time. Well, what a strong message to start this series from Chip Ingram. Are we just trying to protect a Christian bubble of safety and security that we've created for ourselves? Or are we ready to tackle the kingdom objectives that God would accomplish through those whose lives are fully devoted to Him? Well, that's why FCCI exists, to equip and empower you in that leadership calling for God's glory. And if you haven't done it recently, please click over to the FCCI website and find out how you can connect with other FCCI members, online business leadership groups, our monthly webinars, local events in your area, the annual FCCI conference, and so much more. We want to support your calling to transform the world through Christ. And would you let others know about the Pathway to Purpose podcast? Thanks for listening, and may God empower your journey as you lead a company for Christ.